Last time in Judges chapter 2, we ended the chapter uh, discovering that God had said some things about the nation of Israel that they just simply were not willing to comply with His commands. And He was upset with them. In fact, He was very angry. It says in verse 11, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they, they forsook the Lord their God. And even though He had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And that was the problem that resulted in the anger of the Lord being poured out against them because they forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So that latter part of chapter 2 spoke of God's anger over their having been unwilling to follow His will and do His commands. They would not listen even to the judges that He sent. And so chapters 3 until chapter 16 of this book are going to be talking about the judges that God sent whenever they cried out to Him because of the terrible things that were going on, the oppression from uh, peoples all around them. Um, there were several t periods of time throughout that early history before the kings of Israel that the uh, nations around them uh, oppressed them and some of the time it was nations within their own borders, like the Philistines especially, and some of the other Canaanite peoples that they did not uh, choose to destroy. And that served to be a very, very bad situation for them. So chapter 3 now continues in the first portion of chapter 3 with a summary again of what we already saw in chapter 2 with one small change. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that He might test Israel by them, that is, all who had known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So God is not only allowing the Canaanite peoples to remain in the land, even though he had told them that he would drive them out, uh, it seems as though it's almost contradictory because they chose not to drive out or not to destroy the, the Canaanite peoples. But in this passage and in the latter part of chapter 2, we found that God allowed it for a different purpose. In verse 22 of chapter 2, it says... <clears throat> Well, let's go back to verse 21 where it says, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel. So in chapter 2, verse 22, he said he allowed it so that he could test them. In chapter 3, which we just read, he allowed it so that he could show them, at least those who had not known it before this time, <clears throat> what war was like, so that they would know war. God uses the decisions that we make ultimately to bring about His sovereign will. God was not caught by surprise that they didn't do His will. In fact, remember, He warned them through Moses long before this that when you do these things, you are going to be punished for that. He warned them as though He knew it were already going to be done. And of course, that's the foreknowledge of God 
He knows from the beginning from the end. So nothing catches God by surprise, but he uses the decisions that men make and brings about his perfect will through those decisions. And that's just part of their story. Over and over and over again, we see God's mercy in, in allowing them to come back to him even though they had sinned so greatly against him. And over and over and over again, we will continue to see that the key verse, from my perspective, with regard to the period of the judges, is found in chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers, by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. It appears from that verse that it wasn't just a repetitive cycle, and it certainly was that, but it was a downward spiral because they were going deeper and deeper into their sin. And it took a great many years. And again, the period of Judges, as we discussed last time, is a period of about 340 to 350 years. There are, depending on who you listen to, either 12 or 13 Judges listed in the book of Judges. Today, we're going to be looking at the first three of them. One of the three has very little said about him, and it's questionable whether he was even considered to be a judge. He certainly, we'll see, doesn't meet the standard qualification that is described in most of the other situations. And we'll see that as we move forward. But here, in these first few verses, we find that God, again, has chosen to let them remain mixed along with the Canaanite people that they should have destroyed to teach them war. And in the previous chapter again, so that they may be tested by him uh, to show that they are either willing or not to follow. It's not that God needed to find out. God knew the answer to that. They did not know. But they soon found out. There was a certain attractiveness to the gods of the Canaanites. After all, uh, the Canaanites lived luxuriously, for the most part, in those days, in a very productive land. It was a land of milk and honey, God had said. They had built cities, and they were protected by their own people groups from invasions from outside territories until the Israelites came on board. But they were a very wicked and and terrible people. That's why God was going to judge them as he told Abraham over 450 years before this time because of their iniquity. But he held off on that judgment because the iniquity had not yet come to a full a fullness. It was in the time of the judges that that iniquity was full. So God wanted to judge them and for the most part Israel did do what God had said, but not completely. And that, again, is a lack of faith, a lack of obedience, is a lack of trust, it's a lack of willingness to do all of what God commands. It's rebellion. It's sin. And they are judged for it. So, again, in verse 2, repeating that verse, this was only so that the generations of the children might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. And then he describes in verses 3 and following the names of the various people groups. 
the lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And then the last two verses that we'll read here in this section that pertains to this issue with the testing that God has in store for them. Verse 5 says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So there you have it. Israel completely turning away from their God, forgetting him, not in the sense that they didn't remember who he was, but they chose not to be obedient to his commands. They completely rejected the commands of God in favor of the appeal that the Canaanite gods had to them. And not only the Canaanite gods, but they openly decided that it was a good idea to go ahead and mix together with them so that their identity, if they had continued doing so, would ultimately be completely destroyed. It was not God's will for them. He warned them against marrying into the Canaanite peoples or the other way around. He said, that is forbidden. And they should have obeyed the Lord in this, but they did not. So, as a result of that disobedience, they fell into that sin and God took his hand of mercy away from them. And they began to experience God's judgment. And in that judgment, they ultimately would be crying out to their God because of the oppression that would be upon them. And then God in his mercy would answer their cry and bring an individual to help them, to reestablish them as a people of God, to destroy or eliminate the uh, oppressive tribes that were against them, whoever they may have been throughout that history of the judges. And then they would be thankful for God's deliverance, and then they would sit back in on their lees once again and enter into a time of complacency and into a time, again, of falling far short of what God intended and continuing in the sin and even more so than the previous generation. Verse 7 introduces that first cycle, if you will, of the judges. Verse 7 says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. So, Here's an instance where it's not a local enemy. It's not the Philistines. It's not any of the Hivites or the Hittites or any of the other Canaanite people groups or Jebusites. None of those were involved in this oppression. This was an oppression that came from a distant country all the way into the territory of Mesopotamia, which is on the other side of the Euphrates River, Iraq, or further eastward than that. So this individual, this king, Kushan Rishathaim, was a king of Mesopotamia. His word means Kushan, which is an undefined 
phrase uh, from, the, from the Hebrew lexicon, and you're not going to find a, an answer as to what that means. But Rishathayim apparently has a mean, meaning double wickedness. So apparently, it's not likely that it was, this was his name, but rather his title. Kushan may then be uh, a, a name that implies a ruler or a master of double wickedness. And so that gives you an idea of what the writer of the book of Judges thought about this particular individual. It says in verse 9, When the children of Israel then cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. Oftentimes the judges were called deliverers. Sometimes they were called judges. In this case, this particular individual is both a judge and a deliverer of Israel. And it tells us who that deliverer was. He delivered them. And his name is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Remember a couple of times ago, we talked about Caleb defeating the cities that he was allocated. And one of the cities uh, that he was going to conquer, he chose to invite somebody else to conquer that city, and the one who does that would become the husband of his daughter. As it turned out, Othniel was the one who did that. Othniel is Caleb's nephew, the son of his younger brother. And so Othniel married into Caleb's family. And here we find that Othniel is now the one that God chose to deliver Israel from this oppressive invasion from Mesopotamia. And notice what it says in verse 10. Carefully note this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. So this is one of the first instances where you see a reference to the Spirit of Yahweh. In other places in the Old Testament, in the books written by Moses, there's oftentimes a reference to a, a man upon whom the Spirit of uh, God, Elohim, fell upon an individual, especially during the time when they were building the um, testimony, the ark, the covenant, the, uh, the tabernacle, and all the associated things that were involved in that. There was a need for great skill, and it tells us that the Lord put it upon the individuals that he chose by putting his spirit, the spirit of God, upon them so that they would have the skill necessary to do the work. And here, again, it's the first use of the slightly different phrase, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And not that it makes a big difference, but I'm intrigued by the fact that that he is very specific that he's talking about Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And the Spirit came upon him. Now, we have in the present church age a great blessing that is that the Lord not only comes upon us for service, which he does, that's what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we see that over and over again, especially in the book of Acts, which, by the way, we will be going back to in our Sunday morning services uh, next Sunday, the Lord willing. But the Spirit of God 
has always been with us. Jesus said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will come and will dwell with you and will dwell in you. Now, there are three different prepositional phrases that are used in the New Testament with regard to the Holy Spirit. He comes upon, which is epi in the Greek language. He comes in, which is the Greek word en, E-N, if you will, en, in you. And he comes alongside you or with you. And that word is para. And so the relationship that we have in the church is that the Holy Spirit is with us, and he always has been with us. We just maybe didn't know it until we were converted and became believers in Christ Jesus, and he regenerated us when we believed in Christ and accepted the salvation offer, and then he came in to us to dwell in us. We are his temple. He tabernacles or lives in us. But he also comes upon us as it was here in verse 10 of chapter 3 of the book of Judges where he came upon Othniel for service, for a specific task. And that's what he does with us as well in the New Testament uh, dispensation. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. And it tells us in the latter part of verse 10 that he went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest for forty years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So as a young man, when he had conquered that city, took a wife, and then became a judge in the nation of Israel, the very first of the judges, and that's all that we're told about him as his time of a judge lasted for a period of time, and then he died. The land had rest for 40 years. We'll see that many, many times throughout the book of Judges. 40 years is most often a time period where a judge will end, end up judging the nation of Israel. Not always. There's one case, which we'll see in a few moments, that the judge completed his task and they had rest for 80 years. So, that's the story of Othniel, the very first judge. Now, the second judge is mentioned next, and his name was Ehud. And it tells us in chapter 3, verse 12, again the cycle is beginning over again. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then they gathered, or then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of the Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So they had a period of 40 years of rest and then another external king, the king of Moab this time, and along with him, Ammonites and the Anakim, uh, the people of the Amalekites came with him and they defeated Israel and the nation of Israel was in servitude to the king of Moab for 18 years. In verse 8, remember, they were being oppressed by the previous king for a period of 8 years. Now it's a much longer period of time, a total of 18 years. And then it tells us, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, they were paying tribute. They were subservient to the king of Moab. Take note of the fact, again, that the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. And his name is Ehud, and he's left-handed. That's significant, as you'll find out a little bit later on. But he was an individual that the Lord used. And he now is going to be shown to be a very valiant and, and a very brave individual. But he has a plan, and he works out the plan, and I believe it's prearranged, as we, I hope we'll see later on, with the armies of Israel. He's going to go, and he's going to pay the tribute, making a personal request of the king as he does so. So, reading on in verse 16, Now Ehud made himself a dagger, and it was a double-edged dagger and about a cubit in length, about 18 inches. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now, the reason that he would do that is because the vast majority of warriors were right-handed men. Not all of them, but the ones that were typical were right-handed warriors. And a right-handed warrior would strap a dagger or a blade of sword on the left side so that he could draw it out of the sheath across the front of his body as a means of protecting as well as attacking. This man hid his dagger under his robe on the right side. Why? Because we're already told he was left-handed. He's got a scheme, and it's a very sneaky thing that he's doing, because he is very confident in the fact that if they did frisk him, they wouldn't bother frisking his right side. They would only go after what they thought would be a right-handed man's dagger on the left side of his body. So his being left-handed was very, very good in this particular situation. It says in verse 17, So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, that's not a very complimentary thing, but he was very huge. He was very overweight, obese. But that plays into the story as well. Keep that in mind. Verse 18 says, And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, sending them back to their own homeland. He was on his way with them, but he turns back, it tells us in verse 19. He himself turned back from the stone images which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And so he, the king, said, keep silence, and all who attended him went out from him. So he sends his, sends his servants away. He has a secret message. He wants to be in private with Ehud to hear the message that Ehud has to share. And by the way, the fact that it mentions stone images at Gilgal is kind of a concern for the people of Israel, if it is Indeed, stone images. Now, 
it may have been just simply mistranslated here. Some translations translate this quarry, where the quarries where they would cut out stone, probably limestone for buildings. That's a possibility. But if it is truly stone images, the place where Joshua encamped when they first crossed over to the western side of the Jordan, from which they sent out their armies and defeated Jericho and Ai, and they went back to Gilgal on more than one occasion until they finally moved the uh, armies and the rest of the people into the central part of the land. Gilgal was a central part of the place where God met with his people. And it was there at Gilgal that they assembled 12 stones on the shore of the Jordan River as a memorial unto the Lord for what he had allowed them to do in crossing over the Jordan River on dry ground. So Gilgal holds a special place in the hearts of the people of God. But here, apparently, it might have been defiled by stone images, which were images, Canaanite images, that either the Israelis or the Canaanite peoples had erected. We're not sure which. Or it may still, as we said a little bit ago, only be quarries. Uh, But in any case, he came back from that place, Gilgal, and came back to the king and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So now he's alone with the king in his upper chamber. And verse 20 says, So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in the cool private chamber. And then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he, the king, arose from his seat, apparently in respect to Ehud's God and the message that was to be brought on behalf of Ehud or by Ehud to Eglon. So Eglon rose up from his seat. So he's standing right in front of Ehud. And then it says in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand as though he's bringing out a gift, perhaps. He reached in with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. And even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. I know that's kind of a yucky kind of uh, encounter here in the Word of God, but it's even worse in the original Hebrew language than in the translation that I have. I don't know what the NIV or the New American Standard might say instead of entrails, but the King James says dirt came out. The implication is it burst his bowels and he just lost it all in that one encounter with Ehud's dagger. And upset about that, we know now that he has successfully brought the message of God to the king of Moab. And the message of God is simply this, you're about to die. And he did. Verse 23 says, Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So he has escaped. And he locks the doors behind him so that the servants of Eglon can't immediately or won't immediately bother their king. And that's precisely what took place. Verse 24 says, When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, Well, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. In other words, he's probably going to the bathroom. Uh, So they waited. They decided it wouldn't be 
proper for them to interrupt a king in such a private kind of a situation. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and still the doors remained locked. Verse 25 says, So they waited until they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. That gave Ehud enough time to get far away. And he did. He ran all the way back to the mountains of Ephraim. And this is, I believe, part of that which I had mentioned earlier was a prearranged plan that the armies of Israel would be standing by waiting for Ehud to give the message that the job had been accomplished. And this is what verse 26 says, But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And and we're not sure where that particular location is, but it's somewhere in the mountains of Ephraim. And it happened when he arrived, verse 27 says, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. That's why we believe that it was prearranged. He blew the trumpet and they responded. The trumpet sound was to announce, the time is now. And that's what he says in verse 28. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 Years, A very long time indeed. Now it's interesting, I want to go back to the fact that the first judge was filled with the Spirit. He, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The second man that was judge of Israel had a word from God that he delivered without hesitation to the enemy. That required a great deal of courage as well as knowing that that was indeed from God. The word of the Lord came to him, and he conveyed that word to the king of Moab. And I would like to submit to you that in our present time, we have very much the same need for us to be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon us for service. We need men and women to be willing to be used by the Lord in the last days and be given that empowerment by the Holy Spirit to do great things for God in the last days. But we need to know the Word of God and trust that when God speaks, that we are to speak His Word to those who are to hear His Word. So these two are really good examples for us in our present day that we should be like them in those very, very important aspects of our walk with Jesus Christ as our Lord. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit of God not only fill you, but come upon you. Not only be with you and in you, but upon you. And that is important. And know that the Word of God, spoken through His servant, is indeed the Word of God. The last of these first three Judges is mentioned here in the end of chapter 3 in only one single verse. And 
he does not say anything more about this individual than this. Verse 31 says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Now it says that Shamgar came after Ehud. It apparently is during, somewhere during, that 80 years of rest that Israel was experiencing. We know that because of what is subsequently written for us in the next chapter when the next judge is introduced. But take note of the fact that Shamgar is given just as one verse to describe his valor. And he had taken what really was a, an implement of steering oxen as they're pulling the plow, an ox goad. Remember when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and Jesus said to Paul after Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And then he said, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, that's what this man was using, a goad, an instrument to direct again the oxen as they're pulling the plow. It was a stick or a pole with a sharpened end so that he could jab that sharpened end to direct the oxen. The opposite end may or may not have had a small spade attached to it where he could loosen the clay from off of the plows that would be gathering on the plows. So it was a very useful farming implement. So it tells us that this man basically was a simple farmer, but he had something in his hand that God could use. And that's something, again, that I think is important for us to think about as we consider this one little statement that is made with regard to this man, Shamgar. God used what he had in his hand. Remember Moses? When Moses went to investigate why that bush seemed to be burning and not be consumed, he realized when he got there that God was in that bush and God spoke to him. And during that conversation, God had told Moses that he was going to deliver Israel. Well, Moses really wasn't sure that that was such a good idea, so he came up with all kinds of excuses. But ultimately, God won that battle, and God said to him, you are going to go, and you're going to speak to Pharaoh. And still, Moses was reluctant. So God said to Moses, what is that that you have in your hand? Again, this time, Moses' answer was, it's my rod. It's a walking stick. And God said, cast it down to the ground. And so Moses obediently cast it to the ground and it changed into a serpent. And that surprised Moses. I'm sure it would surprise all of us as well. And Moses, if he was anything like me, must have turned back and almost wanted to run away from it. But God spoke to him and said, now pick up that serpent by its tail. <laughs> You don't pick up a serpent by the tail, people. That would be a wrong place to grab a serpent. You're going to grab a serpent, grab it near the head, because if you grab it at the tail, it can easily swing its head around and bite. But God said to do it, so Moses, albeit perhaps reluctantly, grabbed the serpent by the tail, and it changed back into a rod. 
God demonstrated to Moses with that and another miraculous thing that he did to show to Moses that he was with him and that he could go in confidence to do what God had called him to do. All through the scriptures you see that. Very little what is in the hand of a servant of God that God can use. Little is much when God is in it. Think of Gideon. Gideon went against 135,000 enemies of Israel with glass or clay pots. That's all they had in their hands. A clay pot. 300 against 135,000. God used that clay pot in a miraculous way to defeat that enemy. Over and over again, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see examples of people who have very little to do great and mighty things for God, and yet God uses that small thing to glorify His holy name. It's a wonderful picture for us. It's beautiful to realize that we can indeed, if we're willing to just use what we have in our hand to do the great things that God intends for us. That was the case with Shemgar. He had an ox goad, and it says he killed 600 of the Philistines. Now, it doesn't say that Shamgar was a judge, but it does say he delivered the people of Israel in that day. So, most commentators would include him in the list of judges. Not all do. But it was important to realize that the circumstances around Shamgar were slightly different than the circumstances in each of the other cases of the judges. Again, the cycle was very clear throughout every one of the judges, with the exception of this man and two or three others that are later on recorded for us in the book of Judges. Some people refer to Shamgar and two or three of the other judges as minor judges, kind of like the major prophets and minor prophets. Minor in only the sense that very little was written about them. But take note of the fact that although this is the only place that is recorded here in chapter 3 regarding Shamgar, turn with me to chapter 5 and we'll see something here that identifies more about the timing of Shamgar's ministry with regard to uh, this period of time during the 80 years of the time with Israel's being at rest. Chapter 5, verse 6, is part of a poem, a song, that was written by Deborah, who happens to be the next judge, fourth in the list. And Deborah records in verse 6 of chapter 5 these words with regard to Shamgar. And it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. So what she's saying here is that Shamgar came before her. And if you look at chapter 4, it tells us that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
verse 1, again. And so the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had nine hundred chariots of iron, and for twenty years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So what we're seeing here, based on what we've read by the words of Deborah, and by what the writer of Judges has said with regard to the time of rest after Ehud, there was a period of eight, 80 years of rest and another 20 years after that of oppression. And that's when the next judge comes into place. So we can tell from that that, again, Shamgar probably prevented the Philistines from oppressing the people of Israel during that 80 years of rest. He served God in a very special way. And he's given credit for being a man who delivered Israel from those who would have oppressed them. But continuing on in chapter 4, we're going to move a little bit into the story of the next judge. And that judge is Deborah. And a great deal of print is given to Deborah and to the things that happened during her time of being the judge of Israel. And verse 4 tells us now Deborah was a prophetess. The first mention after Miriam of one woman who was a prophetess in the land. And she was a wife of Lapidoth who, and was judging Israel at that time. So she began judging Israel during the time of oppression under Jabin. Tells us now in verse 5, And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Now this is something that perhaps she might have prophesied about. We're not told. But she says, This was a command of the Lord known to Barak, and it was this, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, God speaking, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. God had said this sometime prior to this occasion, but now Deborah is having to remind Barak that this is what God has said. Why have you not acted on it? That's what's happened here. Deborah is questioning Barak as to his reluctance to do what God had commanded. So it says in verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he really didn't want to go against Jabin, primarily because of the fact that Jabin had iron chariots, and he was fearful of that. Deborah was not fearful. Deborah knew that God had said. Barak wasn't quite so sure. So that's what we have for a setup here. And as a result of Barak's unwillingness to go and do what God had commanded, 
Deborah proclaims to him the consequence of his indecisiveness. It says in verse 9, So she said, I will surely go with you. Yeah, I'll do that. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So take note of the fact that Deborah, a woman, is a prophetess in the land of Israel. She's a judge, accepted as a judge by the people of Israel in a time that they had been resting for so many, many years and now were under a, an oppressive state for these last 20 years. And she is telling this man, Barak, that he is the one that God had chosen to defeat Jabin, but he would not go unless he chose, unless rather she, she chose to go with him. So she tells him that there is a woman who will gain the glory for this victory that is about to happen in Israel. Now we're going to stop here tonight and we'll look at that part of the story the next time we get together, the Lord willing. But again, we've found here so far this series of judges, total of four if you include Shamgar, and they all have very important examples that are given for us as believers in Jesus Christ. There is a time for us to act. And when God has spoken, we should be willing to do what God has said. That's the example that is given to us by Deborah. And although Balak, or Barak rather, was not willing, he went but would not receive the glory that could have been his if he had gone and done what God had said. Great lesson for us. Sometimes we don't get all of what we should have gotten because we've been reluctant to do all of what God has asked of us. I pray that as we face the challenges in the days ahead, that every one of us will be so filled with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God would indeed baptize us afresh and come upon us mightily in these last days and dwell in us and not be grieved by us. And I pray that we would be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God in these last days, that there would be great victories ahead for His people as we represent Him. I pray also that God would indeed be glorified through all of those things that we do for Him. Not because of anything we are capable of, but because He has enabled us, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And reminding you and myself, I end with this last thought. We can do nothing without Him. But with Him, we can do all things. Grace and peace.